same size, even though they've exchanged DNA material. So maybe they exchanged chromosome or genes one through four. Exactly, right? <coughs> so that's what homologous recombination is, when you get what's called an equal crossover event. And the result is you get a hybrid uh, chromosome that's composed of both maternal and paternal. me so far? Yeah, question. Is it always new hybrid? Like every time? Yeah, so a hybrid is really um, when you have, when you combine um, the material from a maternal and a paternal chromosome. So if you have a crossing over event, that by definition typically means they're going to be exchanging DNA. Um, now, I guess something could happen in the crossover event where they somehow start the process but then reverse it, but typically when you have um, the last time, I think there's a slide where it shows, oh yeah, here, sorry, too far. Right, where you have this crossing over event, you have a chiasma form, typically they're going to, there's gonna be a breakage point and then they rejoin with the other um, chromosome. And so when that happens, right, they then create this hybrid maternal, paternal chromosome. Great question. Okay, so that's a homologous recombination gets you. Um, so now we're going to talk about what happens. Oh yeah, question. Different. Yeah, so DNA shuffling is when you have a gene kind of jump around on the same chromosome. So here you have maternal and paternal exchanging information. DNA shuffling is where you're talking the same chromosome and pieces of that DNA can get shuffled around. Yeah. So, great question, too. So, gene duplication occurs when you duplicate a gene on a chromosome. This occurs when you have one of those chromosomes during crossover be a piggy and take all the DNA and not give any back or not give the same amount back, essentially. Like it's stealing and not paying for it with its own DNA. So what that would look like, if I were to draw it. So if you have um, two chromosomes that say they cross over, here's our crossover point. If it's
whole genes one and two, right? You've exactly exchanged genes one and two here. Whereas here what happened is green has its genes one and two, but now it just acquired genes one and two from the other chromosome. Shown here. This is um, beta globin up here. 
tried to look to make sure it's beta and not. It's just, it's, it's so, um, it's alpha, thank you, the color coding. Um, okay, so here is modern day hemoglobin, right? It's a, tetra, a tetrameric protein, tetra four. So it has four, it's composed of four peptides, two alpha, two beta. Well, if you go way back down the evolutionary chain to very simple life, what you'll find is just a single gene encoding a single alpha globin. So if you have a single alpha globin with one oxygen binding site, that means each globin can carry how many oxygens? One. But if each hemoglobin has four oxygen binding sites, how many molecules of oxygen can it bind? Four. That's better. Right? So if you're a big old organism like us that needs efficient oxygen exchange to feed its trillions of cells, you want really efficient oxygen exchange. And so the fact um, they think uh, molecular evidence suggests that what happened was um, at some point this uh, kind of primitive globin gene duplicated. So then you had two, right? And then perhaps you could get just a duplication event of those two globins get two other ones, now you have four, right? It can happen in a lot of different ways. But that's the idea, that now in this scenario, what happened, instead of creating kind of different genes that had subtly different functions, they all formed a partnership. They created a tetrameric protein that enabled efficient oxygen exchange. So the way that the proteins change upon kind of duplication and what's called divergence, get to that term in a second, uh, can vary depending on the protein. And it's varied a lot throughout life. So I'm gonna show you different examples. Um, okay. So G, I'm gonna, um, I really like to repeat myself a lot. I'm very redundant, so just, you know, get used to it now. Um, it's because I feel, every time I say it, I say it a little bit differently, and there's always someone who's like, oh, okay, now I get it. Okay, now I get it. So that's why I do that. And again, I appreciate mental vacations. Um, so gene duplication specifically refers to an unequal crossover event that leads to the duplication of a gene. And so I'm gonna ask you guys this, I just explained it, so I actually want someone to regurgitate back to me in their own words, if a duplicated gene is necessary, why might duplication in, uh, enable development of a new gene? What does that duplicated gene give you? Gives you a spare copy, gives you a backup copy. That's right. Gives you that extra laptop to mess with. Okay, now, when just by having that duplicated gene, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to turn into something miraculous like hemoglobin, right? Now you have to wait kind of on random changes that, uh, and I'll talk about where those random changes can come from, that once in a blue moon will lead to a new advantageous function. Sometimes it's a disadvantageous function, right? So, the, and that, um, right, if it decreases the survival of that cell or organism, it's not gonna persist. That's kind of like the uh, boiled down uh, basis of natural selection. Um, okay. So when it develops, when it starts to change, that process of change is referred to as divergence. 
Does anyone know, like, if you just to diverge, what that word means? If you're walking along and you and your friend diverge, what's it mean? Separate. Separate. Take a different path, right? And so divergence refers to the process of, of when it, we're talking about genes, those genes becoming different, right? So divergence, uh, we're talking about genes, <laughs> not two people walking, uh, is when two genes um, become different. And to be really specific, when I talk about genes becoming different, what am I referring to? Yeah, when their sequences change, right? When their sequences, so by genes becoming different, another way of saying it is when um, at least one acquires mutations that makes their sequences different. structure 
It's highly related to alpha globin, so I think we'll just go ahead and name it beta globin, <laughs> right? And that's how the nomenclature people work, essentially, right? You look at sequence similarity, if it, belong, if it looks really similar to another gene, perhaps it has a similar function, let's give it a similar name. Yeah? That's a really good question. So divergence, um, divergence really just means at the molecular level, the acquisition of changes in the sequence. Now, right, at, at what threshold does it take for those sequence changes to change the protein structure enough to have a different function? It's gonna vary, right, according to what the changes are. Um, so, right, you can have changes that are not significant. Like if you change the amino acid to another amino acid that's very similar, so that side change wouldn't really change the way it folds, and that's gonna change the structure in a meaningful way. But if you change something like a glycine that has just a little hydrogen as a side change, like a tryptophan, which has a big old ring structure, now you're talking about probably really changing the structure of that protein, which will likely impact its function. Does that make sense? Yeah. So. You know, one of, I think, the challenging things being a student in this class is a lot of times it's like, oh, I'm going to tell you a lot. It's context dependent. It depends on kind of the nature of the change, right? Okay. Good? Yeah. Got so, two questions. It might be redundant. So what if one of the genes has a silent mutation? Is that still divergence? Yeah, so now we're getting into kind of the semantics and divergence. If you have a silent mutation, I, I mean, I think really what happens is they call it, um, it would just be a different allelic version of the same gene, I think. I think if you, um, but really technically there's an argument for saying it diverged if it acquired a mutation and it's not exactly the same as kind of the parent gene. Um, yeah, so that's something I'd be interested to know, like is there a hard and fast rule? If you get just one mutation, now is that considered divergence or is it just considered like a different allelic variation of the exact same gene? Is that a satisfying enough answer? Yeah. Okay, you're nodding this one. Are they both being expressed at the same time? So, right, when I talk about a gene, if it was just like the open reading frame, which is the part that codes for the protein, um, nothing's gonna happen. It would have to move over with its like all its genetic regulatory elements, which I kind of, when I talk about a gene, I think about those too, because it's the light switch that controls everything. You know what I mean? So it's, um, uh, so yeah, you would need all of that to come along with it. Now, I'm sure there are scenarios where you get um, a recombination event where you duplicate just one part of the gene, you lose its genetic regulatory element, but it gets moved in front of like another genetic regulatory element, which would change when and where and how it's expressed. So that's feasible too. I mean, anything you can think of is probably possible, right? Yeah, but in order for it to get expressed in the same way, which is the most succinct answer to your question, is that it would need its specific promoter and enhancer elements to come along with it. 
formal definition of a gene family. A gene family is a group of genes that originally arose from gene duplication of a single original gene. So a gene family, if you look at the genes within a gene family, they're gonna have similar DNA sequence and similar functions. But is similar the same word as same? No, similar, okay. So I'm gonna talk about a few examples of that. In one, I was just talking about genetic regulatory elements, so let's build off that. Because something that we have a ton of are transcription factors and transcription factor families. So let's talk about, I'm actually in the next slide gonna talk to you, um, or in a slide coming up, about a transcription factor family called the Hawks family of transcription factor. So I'm gonna kinda draw out now what I mean by kind of structural changes in the sequence. So if you have, so Hawks gene family, so similar function, they are all transcription factors. What do, what do transcription factors do? Control transcription. Do they have to all bind something? What do they bind? Do you guys are like transcription translation? It's a long summer. <laughs> DNA. DNA, boom. Yeah, control transcription by binding DNA. Right? Specifically, they help bind promoters and something called enhancers, which you're going to learn a lot about in lectures six and seven. And what they then do is when they bind, they recruit. Does anyone know the name of the enzyme they recruit to transcribe? Yeah, RNA polymerase, which it's actually RNA fold two, that then um, will create the RNA copy. Okay. So if you have different transcription factors, what do you think is different about them? My abbreviation for translation is TLN. You learn in biology, you have to write to prove that. Different transcription factors. It's something up here that they all do different. What they bind to? What they bind to. Yes. Different transcription factors bind different DNA sequences. So when you have structural change in a transcription factor, it can influence how they bind DNA. So maybe you have, let's just draw, I'm just gonna make up a sequence. Me too. What is that all about? I don't know. 
more new one. Okay. And then maybe we have over here A T and Transcription factor one that binds perfectly to TAAC. Transcription factor one. And because I'm talking Hawks gene family, let's just call this. And in us. 
So Hox genes, even though they've changed throughout evolutionary time, whether you're in a fruit fly or in us, they're transcription factors that are master regulators of like different segments along the anterior-posterior axis. So now check this out. You get to a mouse embryo, and whoa, you've had massive duplication just from this invertebrate to this mammal, this teeny tiny uh, mammal that's still very distantly related to us. I'm not going to count all those, but clearly you can see it's way more than Drosophila because there were massive duplication events that enabled the Hox genes that lead to the development of even more um, tissues like vertebrae, right? So Hox genes are important for the patterning of our vertebrae. Um, okay. So again, gene families give rise to families of related genes in a single cell. All these genes, they're still related. Like if you align them, if you do sequence alignment, they're gonna have like a lot of those lines saying, oh yeah, there's like 70% sequence identity. But it's different enough that they can bind to different promoters and leave you the expression of different genes. And I'll show you an example of what, what you can do if you're a mad scientist in a lab playing with Hox genes in a second. So the function of a gene can often de be deduced from its sequence if it belongs to your family. What I mean by that is say you're a new grad student, and this actually happened to me when I was a grad student. My uh, PI, which stands for primary investigator, said, hey, so I have these different project options. Here's this one uh, where it's this gene that's no one's ever worked on, totally unidentified. If you characterize this gene, you'll get to name it. And I'm like, oh yeah, I want that one. Mm -hmm. And he's like, it's a very high risk. I'm like, no, no, that sounds cool. And then I'm like, what have I done? Because uh, no one studied this, and it's just a DNA sequence. And so the first thing I did was did a simple sequence search, right? Like using black. And what came back was, hey, this gene has sequence similarity to this gene family called lipocalins. Lipocalins, lipo, anyone know what lipo stands for? Lipid, yeah. And then kalin, cup, lipid cup. So the, it's a, uh, a family of proteins that will buy, bind to lipid modified proteins and help carry them around the extracellular space. So the one I identified helped transport this molecule called Wnt around, so I named it SWIM for secreted Wnt interacting molecule to help it swim around in the extracellular. <laughs> <laughs> I'm more proud of myself for that acronym than like the seven years of work it took to figure that out. Because <laughs> then, right, you do the sequence analysis and I'm like, yeah, I think it's a lipocalin. And then my advisor's like, cool, now spend seven years determining that experimentally, which is what I did. Um, okay. So if you find, if the gene, if I did a sequence search and it came back and said, oh, this looks like a Hox gene family member because it has sequence similarity with Hox B1, B2, and it has this DNA binding domain, I'd be like, sweet, I bet this is a, a transcription factor that regulates anterior-posterior patterning. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So if a gene has a se similar sequence to an already identified gene family, it can help you say, ooh, I bet that's its function. But then you have to also spend years determining that. Um, okay, so Hawks family, um, their transcription factors, all important for early embryonic patterning events, but each Hawks regulates the development of different body segments. Okay, so the people who first figured this out in uh, Drosophila and fruit flies, one of the first experiments they did was like, huh, so I wonder what would happen if you took the Hawks genes that regulate leg development Put them in the head. 
So here's a normal fly, and here is a fly with legs growing out of where the antenna should grow. That's crazy. Huh? It's like mad science. I think this is what like a lot of people think that's all I do. And like, oh, this is an aside. One day I was in lab and uh, someone from like the machine shop came by and uh, what did he say? Someone left their slide on the uh, you know microscope and I don't know what fluids are on there. I was like, I think it's just water, man. It's not like we have like, we're making blue babies in here or something. He was like, <gasps> it's like, oh, I shouldn't have said that out loud. <laughs> that was a really bad joke. But right, because you forget like the um, there's such a big disconnect between people who aren't scientists and, and people who are. Um, that it, it was totally mystifying to me before I, I became a scientist. So, anyways, uh, <coughs> I replaced my filter because I don't say that out loud again. Um, okay. So I'm going to harp on gene families for a little bit more, and then we're going to take a break for a scheduling activity. And then we'll get back to the lecture after that. Okay, so duplication and divergence give rise to related genes. So it's a really common contributor to evolutionary change. Right? So if you just have a single transcription factor, you're not going to have much complexity in that cell. Right? Uh, in fact, you're hard-pressed to get more than one type of cell if you just have one transcription factor. So in order to get more complexity in an organism, you really need to um, increase the diversity of genes that are regulating gene expression. That's just one example of a gene family. So it turns out, right, Hox would be, a Hox gene family would be one example of a protein-coding gene family. It turns out there are at least 5,000 different uh, gene families that we've identified. Um, don't get hung up on the nomenclature here. I'll walk you through it. So, there are 250 gene families that have been designated as ancient. For something to be designated as ancient, it means that it's been found in at least one organism in all three domains, right? So bacteria, archaea, humans. So it's ancient, um, right? That implies that it must be in those single-celled organisms as well. That's different than those 60 core genes I talked about last time, which are ubiquitous in all genomes analyzed. So what that implies is not only is it in all three domains, it's in every organism we've assessed in each of those three domains. Does that make sense? That difference? I don't test you on stuff like that anyways. It's just I find that when nomenclature is confusing, it's like a roadblock in class and going, I can't be attention. Okay, so most of the ancient families, again, is building on that principle that I talked about last time, are going to perform replication, transcription, translation, amino acid metabolism, processes that are shared whether throughout life, whether you're a single cell bacteria um, or in us. Okay, and in this slide, this is just um, kind of trying to help you appreciate the scope of how common gene families are. So we're looking at single called Bacillus subtilis. Um, its entire genome only includes about 4,000 genes. And it turns out that almost half of those genes exist within gene families, right? So a uh, little over 2,000 genes, no family relationship. 570 genes are in families with two gene members. So if you have two gene members, how many duplication events must have occurred to get it? Just one. Right? To get to duplicate the gene. Yeah, and then if you have three gene members, you're you're talking at least two duplication events to get to three. Check this out though. 
There are 283 genes in this bacteria that have 38 to 77 gene members, right? So families can be really big even in a single cell organism. And it turns out in a bacteria, you think, okay, what is a bacteria need 77 <laughs> gene family members for? Your single cell bacteria, you're so reliant upon transport across your cell membrane, right, to get things in and to get things out. It turns out the one that's the big winner in terms of having the most family members, something called an ABC transporter. Uh, extra detail, ATPase binding cassette. So it's an ATP dependent transporter. At, remember CFTR, the gene important for fluoride ion transport? Um, in cystic, well, in all of us, and that's mutated in cystic fibrosis patients, it's a type of ABC transporter, right? And so these different transporters, um, they all function as transport proteins in uh, the membrane, right? So that's their common function. But they must be subtly different, right? They transport different things, right? And some transport out, some transport in. So even though they all you are powered by ATP to facilitate transport across a membrane, they're transporting different things. So that's where you get the subtle difference in their function. Getting it? Cool. Spending so much time on this because it's such a foundational concept. And a lot of times the students have struggled in previous semesters and like, okay, I will spend 10 more minutes on it next time around um, to see if that will help. Which is why I end up going slower and slower every semester. Um, and so expansion of gene families give rise to function. What I mean by that is here, this gene family expanded, you get a new function, because this transcription factor is expressing a different gene. <coughs> so transcription factors regulate gene expression, diversity and complex, and therefore really regulate our diversity and complexity, because we talked about the first day you have the same DNA in all your cells, how do you have different cells? Differences in gene expression, right? The differences in gene expression come from right? So if you vary your transcription factors, now you're talking more robust differences in gene expression possible. So check it out. Like yeast, the single-celled eukaryote, uh, this one type of transcription factor is basic helix, helix, not that important, you'll never see this term again in this class, but it's just like a different gene family member than hawks, right? There's only seven of them in yeast. Now let's go to a teeny tiny multicellular organism, 41. The coolest model organism for flies, 84. Get up to humans, 131. So right, the more difference, the more complex cells you have, the um, uh, bigger you can expect gene families to get. So another example, adhesion and signaling, so cells sticking together and then communicating with one another. Um, that's more important in multicellular organisms. So there are 2,000 plasma member proteins, plasma member, I can do it, uh, plasma membrane proteins in worms, um, right, and they're multicellular. They're not present or in low numbers in yeast. They're single cell. They don't need to really adhere to each other. They do some communicating, though, so they do have some plasma membrane proteins, but not nearly the amount you see in a multicellular organism. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, 
or the next one has less um, genes. Yeah, genes and amylase. So so That's a really good point. Could you make the argument that the more transcription factors in our genes have more complex genes? I don't know. I would, I would assume the more varied the transcription factors are, yeah, the more complex the organism is going to be in terms of like because that directly lends itself to having more complex genetic regulation. So I'll also say it's not the only way we get variation in gene expression. It's one of the big ones. But like we talked about um, last time, a big one is differential splicing. So if you had an organism that had a ton of transcription factors with no RNAs or but no mechanism for splicing, ooh, you're probably not going to be as complex. So again, like there's this big, yeah, you're getting it though. I love um, your thinking there. Uh, but yeah, I think there's more to it. Um, yeah, a lot of memory has exceptions to everything. It just makes it hard to teach. Yeah. Can you go back to slide? Of course. It's a basic helix loop helix transcription factor. So this is the transcription factor that's just named after its structure. And it's just a really common family of transcription factors. That they just picked to use an example when we first were coming up with the curriculum for 121. Yeah, it could have been anything. I could have said apple transcription factor. Like it doesn't take away from the point. But thank you because I'm sure a lot of other people are like acronym ah. That means about 70% sequence identity between the genes that include elastase and chemotrypsin. 
put on the top, I just repeated again the uh, definition of gene. So these are two digestive enzymes, and they have a lot of similarities. Right? So they're in the same gene family, so again, similar um, function. Both belong to the serine protease family, uh, to be a serine protease in the catalytic site, the site that binds proteins. And prote does anyone know what proteases do? Yeah, they break down proteins. ACE, right, it's an enzyme protein. So it's, it breaks down proteins. Please check the type on. And to be a serine protease, you have to have what's called a reactive serine residue in your catalytic site. That means that reactive serine residue attacks peptide bonds and breaks them. So they both have that. Um, and both are secreted by the pancreas into the small intestine, right? So they're both important for digestion. They both break proteins down. What is different about them? So the sequence divergence, that 30% sequence di divergence, has changed the type of peptide bond they cleave. So chemotrypsin, it turns out, cleaves bonds next to aromatic residues on the proteins it cuts up, whereas elastase prefers to cut bonds next to small hydrophobic residues. Okay, so right, they're in the same gene family. They're both serine proteases. Their sequences are similar, but not the same, 70% identical. And they have a similar function, but it's not the same. They both digest proteins, but they digest them uh, next to different amino acids. So that's how they're different. So that small structural difference in the catalytic site changes where they cut the protein. So right, having both of these means that proteins are more efficiently digested. Because if you just had chemotrypsin, it would be cleaving bonds only next to aromatic residues. But since we also have elastase, it will chew up those peptides more efficiently because it's going to cut them also next to small hydrophobic residues. Does that make sense? You improve your efficiency with digestion if you have both these guys. Yeah. Okay. Whew. Okay, that was gene families. Does anyone have a question on gene families before I move on to mutations? Not for now? Okay. Yeah. Just have a bunch of Hox A's. Just be 
really good at transcribing that one gene that Hox A can transcribe. The most common source of DNA mutation is air during replication. So just when cells divide, you have DNA polymerase copying all that DNA, it makes mistakes. That's where most of the air comes from. Environmental damage can also um, help lead to mutation. So it turns out that environmental damage, it usually doesn't directly cause a mutation, but um, the way it can change the DNA, it, uh, it basically causes DNA repair mechanisms to, um, to try to repair the damage, and the repair mechanisms can mess up and create an error. So like um, uh, UV irradiation, do you guys know how that damages your DNA, what it actually causes? Yeah, it causes like thymidine dimers. And when those, um, when thymidines are next to each other and they form this dimer, it causes like a lump in the DNA and the repair mechanism will be like, ooh, that structure's wrong. And so it'll excise the dimer and then try to replace two uh, thymines in there, right? Well, sometimes it'll make a mistake and not put a thymine in. It'll put like an adenine in. Now you have a mutation. So that's how environmental um, damage, it's not like it, it's not changing the thymine, it's just causing it to dimerize. So that's not actually a mutation, um, but then the repair mechanisms can mess up because they're not 100% efficient. No such thing as 100% efficiency in the world, unfortunately. Except for my love of my children. Let's <laughs> 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 talk about them at least once. Um, okay. So when you, a mutation is acquired, in order for it to actually influence the population, the mutation has to occur in our germline for gamete producing cells. Why is that? You pass it on, right? So if I get, like I, I actually did have like pre, a pre-melanoma scare and I had to have those cells removed and Mortifying kids can't grow up without a mother like every night. I'm like so yeah, anyways. Um and I have weird stories about the I'm just gonna tell it because I'm so tired of talking to you guys. <laughs> <laughs> so I have Kaiser and it took forever to get this appointment. And like they kept removing more and more tissue, and every time they remove the tissue, they check the borders and tell you if the cells are clean or not. Because if they're still precancerous cells, they have to come in and remove more tissue. So that happened to me twice in the dermatologist's office. And the dermatologist was like, look, it's so it's so far out, we have to have a plastic surgeon remove the tissue now. Um, and it was, I'll just tell you, it was on a part of my part of my body that is clothed. Um, and so I I got the appointment and you know it's Kaiser, so it was kind of booked out, and so the whole time like <laughs> my sister's like buying me healing rocks and <laughs> and then I go to the plastic surgeon and he walks in, he's looking at my face and like so you tell me what you're here for and I was like what are you here for and like said bad words in my head so I didn't even look at the file and so I explained to him and he's like oh that's funny my, my uh, area of expertise is facial reconstruction and I was like facial reconstruction so that's why he was like looking at my face so intently like this guy is weird um, but yeah I was like can you just take to just take cut it out and he was like uh i'll look at the air i was like just cut it out and so he, he did <laughs> okay so all a tangent but i acquired
had very nasty mutations in my skin that led to this pre-melanoma situation. But could that ever affect the population? No. Even if I had that before I had kids, that was in my skin. They don't acquire my skin. The DNA that they get from me is from my eggs, right? So that's why the only way a mutation in an individual is really going to affect the population is if it's acquired in your germline cells, right? Germline cells being um, germline stem cells, which are the cells that give rise to your eggs and sperm. Um, so somatic mutations might affect the individual and be horrific for the individual, but they are not going to affect the population. Um, and so it's interesting, single-celled organisms like have relatively lowish rates of mutation but can lead to really high rates of evolution. Do you guys know why that is? Like how could you have a single-celled organism that doesn't have like a super high rate of mutation but it can lead to like fast genetic change in that organism? Like antibiotic resistance, for example. Yeah. Boom. Exactly. Right. So, I, in my whole life, have given birth to two children. Right. So, any genetic changes in my germline stem cells, it's two humans would have been affected. Whereas in bacteria, right? You have one bacterial cell uh, with the appropriate conditions today. By tomorrow, you'll have millions of cells. Um, the other reason is if you affect my DNA, well, it has to hit my germline stem cells to affect the population. Do bacteria have germline cells? No, it's just them. It's just their DNA. So if their DNA is affected, it is affecting all of their progeny. Okay? So they, if the two reasons are really because they don't have germline cells. So if they have a mutation in their DNA, it's affecting their daughter cells. And then the other is their rate of proliferation. Yeah, question. This is going back to what you asked earlier. Oh, it's okay. But um, the genes out there, the gene families, are they always in common for transcription? No, right? So you can have, um, the, uh, so some other examples that we went over, so like serine proteases. This is a serine protease um, family. So they don't do transcription at all. They cut proteins, right? Um, or, uh, other examples here, like there are gene families for adhesion, like there's a big gene family called cadherins, which are important for cells sticking together, um, or signaling. We're going to talk a lot about signaling proteins and gene families for uh, all of those proteins as well. So you name it in the cell, any gene function and any protein, um, or any protein function, there's probably a gene family for um, uh, the genes that encode those proteins. Transcription factors is just the one I went over kind of at length on the board, but yeah. yeah. And the most common source of gene mutation, again, is error during replication. So this is a horrifying part. Heavy burden understanding cellular and molecular biology. Um, there's an average of one mistake per 10,000 base pairs. You guys remember how many base pairs we have? Three billion. So one per ten thousand—that's a lot. But luckily, we have really robust proofreading mechanisms that drops that to one per billion. So that means anytime we have like an adult stem cell that divides, you can expect.